Thank you, and once again, good day to students and teachers of the Word of God. In our 49th lesson on the Theological Seminar of the Air, we've been discussing the matter of the Holy Spirit, which comes under the subject heading of pneumatology and the study of dogmatic and systematic theology, which simply means knowledge about the Spirit. Our lesson today deals with sins committed against the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about some of these on previous broadcasts. We talked, for example, about the uh, fact the Holy Spirit can be insulted by the pride of men, be vexed by the disobedience of men. We talked about the so-called blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. On our lesson today, we're talking about the fact that men can resist or grieve the Holy Spirit by unbelief. We can sin against the Holy Spirit by tempting him. We can sin against the Holy Spirit by quenching his work in a group, and we can uh, grieve the Holy Spirit of God and sin against him by being frivolous or light-minded or jesting instead of sober. Now, we're going to talk about these matters in today's broadcast, and then our next two broadcasts, we'll be discussing the spirit-filled life of the believer, and contrasting, of course, this with the modern charismatic phony, which is an attempt to drag the ecumenical carcass of the dead church back to the pagan Romanism of the Dark Ages. Anybody who studies church history knows the only thing that men learn from church history is that men never learn from church history. The desire for organic institutional unity, institutionalized unity, by getting the church members of various groups together so that eventually their churches wind up together, is Satan's masterpiece in this age and the work that he is very much interested in. Ecumenical, of course, means worldwide. Worldly Christians are always fooling with ecumenicism. And the reason is not very hard to find. They love this present world system, and they've settled down in it, and they're at home in it. So when we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, and especially the work of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit-filled life, we'll never waste any time discussing the common things being taught and practiced today by the people who talk the most about the Holy Ghost and know the least about him. Now, in today's lesson, first of all, we notice the Holy Spirit can be resisted by the unbelief of men. Acts 7.51 in Stephen's sermon, Stephen says, You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. This lays down a great precept in Scripture we should be very careful to note. And, of course, it runs afoul of the dogmatic theology of the Calvinists. There is no such thing in the Bible as irresistible grace. Grace can always be resisted and usually is. As a matter of fact, Stephen said, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit trying to deal with Israel was always resisted in the Old Testament, and the history of the Old Testament, of course, is a consistent history of a constant, stubborn rebellion, which is perennial in any age, and continues throughout the entire history of the theocracy and the, uh, the, uh, oh, divine rulership over Israel. I say theocracy. God was supposed to be the God. It turned out to be a monarchy. But God was supposed to be their ruler. And if you remember your Old Testament from 1 Samuel, you remember how Samuel was grieved when the children of Israel asked for a ruler over them when God was their ruler. And the Lord told Samuel, they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not rule over them. So I'll so throughout the Old Testament theocracy and throughout the Old Testament monarchy, the Holy Spirit is continually resisted. He is resisted just as much today as he ever was, and the ridiculous teaching that the Holy Spirit cannot be resisted in his work of convicting of sin and revealing Christ is nonsense. It's philosophical nonsense, 
And maybe the proper study for such uh, deluded souls as Burkhoff, Dabney, Hodge, Kuyper, uh, Gill, and the Puritans, the Sovereign Book Club, and the Grace Press, and so forth and so on, the Sovereign Grace Crowd. But, of course, the Bible knows absolutely nothing about it. One must never forget that John Calvin, although he had his good points, would uh, have you burned at the stake for disagreeing with him theologically. You should never forget that the only blot on Bible-believing Christianity that matches the horrors of the Roman Dark Ages was the Salem witchcraft trials and the burning of people at the stake. This was characteristic of a different church over in South Ireland called the Irish Republican Army, which will burn you at the stake or torture you, anything else. And it's very characteristic of the Bloody Mary, Queen of England, who burned people in the Smithsfield right and left. But these godless, blasphemous, pagan people who profess to be Christian while they're following the old uh, Roman harlot of Matthew 13 have nothing to do with Bible-believing Christianity. And the great escutcheon, the blot upon the uh, history of evangelical theology is the blot placed upon John Calvin, who had Savitas burned at the stake in Geneva, and then his followers who burned witches in Salem. There is no precedent in the New Testament under any type of situation where any Christian has any business burning anybody. And, of course, Calvin was not a very good Bible-believing Christian. He was a philosophical theologian, but certainly not a Bible-believing Christian. So when we talk about irresistible grace, we're talking about the philosophical speculation of a theologian, not the biblical exposition of a Bible believer. When we resist the Holy Ghost, we doubt the Word of God and vice versa. In Hebrews 3.19, we read, So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief causes men to resist the Holy Spirit, and the resisting Holy Spirit augments this unbelief and increases it. Often the Holy Spirit quickens the conscience of a man to do right, and he deliberately resists his pleading and leading, and he's actually manifesting unbelief, and of course this is the damning sin that's mentioned in the book of John. In John chapter 16, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the world today. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, and he's going to convince them of sin. Why? Because of unbelief. Notice this in John chapter 16, verse 8 to 11. He will convince the world of sin because they do not believe on Jesus Christ. Therefore, unbelief is plainly a sin against the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit often quickens the conscience of the unsaved man and tells him, you need to get saved. You need to go down the aisle. You need to make a public profession. The Holy Spirit has dealt with many a man about this matter of Christ's rejection. And the outstanding mark of the man who is under conviction is the man who knows that his own righteousness can't save him and that he must have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Evangelical repentance from the Word of God has nothing to do with just uh, feeling upset about your devilment because you got caught in it. Evangelical repentance of the Bible is being sorry for what you are, and it's the Holy Spirit that wrought this conviction in the heart of the unsaved man. There is nothing in the revelation of nature, there is nothing in the revelation of science, there is nothing taught in any college curriculum anywhere in the world that will show a man his need for trusting Jesus Christ. It isn't available. There is nothing in the Twenty or hundred religions of mankind combined that would ever show a man that he is basically no good. The unsaved man instinctively rejects this negativism and will not have it. Uh, one of these uh, positive thinkers, one of these uh, typical liberal morons, was telling his people how to read the Bible. He said it's kind of like a banana. You have to strip down what you don't want and throw it away. 
You know what that fool meant? And he was a fool according to Luke 24. I'm quoting Jesus Christ, not giving my opinion. Old fools and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. You know what that fool said? He said, if you find something in the Bible you don't like the taste of, throw it away. You know what this means? This means he cannot find out his condition as revealed by the Bible. Because the Bible revelation of man is negative. It isn't edible. It's the most it's the most tasteless, untasteful, a detestable thing you ever put in your mouth that'll give you a case of the gagging wretches. So it's the Holy Spirit himself who shows man his depravity. It is the Holy Spirit himself who shows a man that a man's righteousness cannot save him, that all his righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and that the best he can do is no good. And you will find that out from no other source on this earth or in heaven or hell than from the Holy Spirit. If 150,000 UFOs landed tomorrow in these great humanoids from outer space who can't fly without fuel, <laughs> a very interesting proposition on intellectualism, an angel can, an angel can fly without fuel. You don't find an angel have to go in and out of water to tap somebody's hydraulic pumps or their electrical power plant. Did you ever think about that? If 150,000 UFOs landed a night with ten occupants each one of them and gave us the greatest revelation ever given from outer space to man, they could not show you what you can find out in the King James 1611 authorized version. They could not show you that your own righteousness cannot save and that you, the best you can do, will land you in hell. And if they knew it, they wouldn't show it to you. So we see the Holy Spirit is resisted by the unbelief of men and what the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says your righteous are as filthy rags, and when men reject that, they resist the Holy Spirit and sin against God by unbelief. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will lead a Christian to speak to a soul, or to drop a sin, or to become a missionary, or go to Bible school, or live a separated life, or to give to the poor. But instead of obedience, the Christian resists the guidance. And when the, Holy, when the Holy Spirit is leading a Christian to do these things and he resists, he is sinning. Now, we've said uh, before, and we'll say again on subsequent broadcasts, the most dangerous point in the Christian's life is right after he gets saved and wants to obey the Holy Spirit and follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. For at this point, Satan will do everything he can to counterfeit the work of the Holy Spirit. So when the Christian surrenders his will, it goes to the wrong spirit. You understand, therefore, that a demon-possessed Christian is a person who got saved and then caught up in a spiritual movement where he mistook the spirit of Satan for the Holy Ghost and was afraid to say it because he thought he'd commit the unpardonable sin. This means we have, uh, especially in the Midwest, a tremendous amount of so-called Pentecostal or charismatic groups who are demon-possessed Christians who've turned their lives over to Satan in the name of the Holy Ghost and the Lord Jesus Christ. And they cannot recover themselves, for they are afraid if they ever identify the unclean spirit, they will blaspheme the Holy Spirit and commit the unpardonable sin. And that's why you find these people constantly taken up with demon possession, demon exorcism, and the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost and the unpardonable sin. Their lives are shot. They've gotten themselves in a place where if the Holy Spirit led them to do something, they wouldn't know what spirit it was. And the safest way out is to pretend that the experience and love and getting along with folks and getting together is what the Lord is leading them to do. The Holy Spirit led you never to do nothing of the kind. 
the Holy Spirit leads a man, first of all, to believe what God said. And if you don't believe what God said, as God said it, where he said it, don't you waste my time a lot of talk about the Holy Ghost. You've got the unholy ghost, brother. The initial evidence of the baptism of the unclean spirit. The Holy Spirit does not lead a man to jibber-jabber in a tongue nobody understands, and it doesn't happen one time in the book of Acts anywhere, from Acts 1 to Acts 28. There isn't a tongue spoken from Acts 1 to Acts 28 that isn't decipherable as a foreign language. There isn't one of them. Now, here's a warning, Genesis 6-3. My spirit shall not always strive with man. So is this too long? God may turn a unsaved man over to a reprobate mind, Romans 1-24, and he may turn a Christian over to a reprobate mind in regard to his leadership for his life. When we deal with a Christian reprobate, we find he's always hung up on what we call a hobby horse. He's a dispensational or doctrinal nut. We find these Christians, the one that get hung up on tongues, talk about the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost. Something has affected their speech. Their tongue can't pronounce words correctly, not even English words. It isn't the Holy Ghost. It's the Holy Ghost. You find the same thing among the Campbellite elders who've been uh, consorting with unclean spirits for so long they can't say the word baptism right. And they continually say, baptism, until you call to their attention and they straighten up as long as they can remember and they slip back into their old ways. We find the same thing, too, of the hyper-dispensationalists that follow Ballinger, Bullinger, O'Hare, Stam, and Baker, who can nearly talk about the church of the one body, the church of the one body, the church of the one body. There's no such expression anywhere in the Word of God of the church of the one body. There is the church which is his body, and there is his body which is the church, for the church of the one body is dictated by an unclean spirit. And these people not only have trouble with tongues in unknown and foreign languages, but in their own language. They've been given over to a reprobate mind. We spot the reprobate mind by what we call circular reasoning in classical psychology, which is indicated by taking the forefinger and making circles around the side of the head. Briefly, it means the reprobate is caught in what we call a logic-tight compartment which means he has defended himself and gotten himself a place he can defend by a system of logic, and he stays in that compartment and can't leave the compartment. So he runs in circles. If you want to see this demonstrated most clearly, contact the nearest Campbellite in your area and watch him run Mark 16, 16, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Acts 22, 17 and 18, with 1 Peter 3, 21, Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 3, with Acts 2, 38, and then run in a circle there with his tail between his legs the rest of his life. This is characteristic of the reprobate mind, the mind that can't think clearly and has been turned over to Satan. If the spirit is to have full possession of our heart, we must cease all resistance and clean out all the evil that has so long polluted us and cast out, first of all, unbelief. Therefore, unbelief in the Word of God is the primary factor in the demon-possessed reprobate Christian who has been turned over to a reprobate mind. The demon-possessed Christian will read Acts 2.38 and teach it as a plan of salvation, although the Holy Spirit told him in the chapter there are no Christians present and everybody present is a Jew or a Jewish proselyte. However, he doesn't believe this. The demon-possessed reprobate Christian will take Acts chapter 2, 1 to 3 and insist he's been baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire. When the Holy Ghost who wrote the chapter said the tongues of were like as of fire and not fire, 
But the demon-possessed Christian with a reprobate mind cannot believe this because he has surrendered to Satan in the name of the Holy Spirit. He's accepted the counterfeit spirit. When the demon-possessed Christian picks up John chapter 3 and reads, Except the man be born of water and of the Spirit, he takes the word baptism and puts it into the word, into verse uh, 6 after the word water when it's not in verse 6 or verse 5. As a matter of fact, the word baptism occurs nowhere in John chapter 3, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. It is a subject being discussed. But the demoniac Christian with a reprobate mind, who is in a logic-tight compartment of circular reasoning, has got himself in a place where the mind can't function properly, and he becomes irrational. That is, in brief, a reprobate mind. You can always spot them. The reprobate mind of the Christian will turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 3, and talk about water baptism in Christ. The term water is not found anywhere in the entire book of Romans, let alone chapter 6. There is no mention of water anywhere in the book of Romans. Not once in 16 chapters. Now that's how you spot the reprobate mind. Having got into the logic-type compartment of circular reasoning, the reprobate spins his wheels on a series of verses which he has laid out in a logical form. Very characteristic of this is the hyper-Calvinist system, or the simony of the, uh, the system of the primitives, or hard shells. Well, the work is so laid out that all the Bible must be taught, um, made to taught, an absolute fixed predestination of everything, which, of course, it doesn't. But when the Christian is turned over to a reprobate mind, he never recovers his ground. His life, practically and spiritually speaking, for the Lord is useless. Now we sin against the Holy Spirit when we're tempted by the insincerity of man. Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 to 9, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Ananias, Sapphira, and seeking to deceive their brethren, actually tempted God and lied to God. A man is guilty of this when he pretends to his brethren that he is wholly devoted to God when he is indulging in secret sin or pretending that he is spiritual when he is not. Beware of a profession that is more holy before men than it is before God. You should be just before men what you are before God, and just before God what you are before men. Down the Orleans one time, I was approached by a black-hooded, bale-robed uh, uh, fellow who came up, and I, and I asked him why he wore that junk. He had his beads and everything on him, and he said it was the insignia of his consecration. I told him my face was my insignia. I'm no holier than I look. I'm no holier than I am. Beware of a profession that is more holy before men than it is before God. That's the work of a hypocrite. And every deception and exaggeration, every false impression intended to harm, and every lie to man is a lie to the Holy Ghost. The Pharisees of Christ's day put on a tremendous profession before men. Their hearts were like whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones and all iniquity. David says in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Don't stand up in consecration and sing, I surrender all, when you know your heart has no intention of surrendering, and to stand there being a hypocrite. Don't sing, throw out the lifeline, when you can't hang out a clothesline. Don't sing, uh, gladly the cross I bear, when you won't pick the thing up once. And don't sing, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way, when you've had your own way ever since you got saved. And, uh, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha in the Second Kings 5, lies and becomes a leper as punishment. If the Holy Spirit bear the body a leper as punishment for lying to him, you'd have so many lepers in America, you wouldn't have a colony big enough to hold them. 
That is, no, the Holy Spirit can be quenched by the prejudice of men. In 1 Thessalonians 5:19-20, we read, Quench not the Spirit. This is a solemn command. This refers, of course, in the context of the work of the Holy Spirit in an assembly. We read in Ephesians chapter 6, 16, that faith uh, it can quench all the fire darts of the wicked one. We should be spending our time quenching the fire darts of the devil, not the Holy Spirit. To quench means to stifle or to silence. And the thought is in quenching of the suffocation of fire, as in Isaiah 4, verse 4. Do not quench or stifle out the pleading of the Holy Spirit. When he speaks to us through the word or conscience, we must obey, irrespective of the cause. It is possible to quench the Holy Spirit in one point, but yield to him on another point. When a person is first converted, the Holy Spirit speaks very loudly when he does wrong. But if the Holy Spirit's voice ignored, his influence becomes less and less until silenced. And Paul speaks about these people as having a conscience seared with a hot iron. The unsaved man's conscience is said to be defiled. Titus chapter 1, the last two verses. Remonstrances that go unheeded result in hardness of heart and lead to quenching the Holy Spirit's work when he gets working in a congregation. Let us be careful in criticizing the Holy Spirit in the testimony of some believer or the sermon of some preacher, lest we be guilty of quenching the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Again, we should never be slightly disturbed about telling somebody to shut their big mouth when they're lying about the Holy Spirit, as many charismatics do. Once again, we should never be afraid to hold up to a ridicule and rebuke publicly and openly the carnal Christian who is blaspheming the Word of God and quenching the Holy Spirit himself by putting on a theological, theoretical emotional show of a psychological nature trying to convince you he's spiritual when he's just as carnal as a devil. One must never forget that 1 Corinthians 14 was written in the most carnal bunch of Christians in the entire book of the Bible. Of all the 66 books in the Bible, the one that's aimed at a carnal church is the one that talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Don't ever forget that. The Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14 were bragging about their manifestations and their renewals and all that jazz. Those people are the most carnal, depraved bunch of Christians in the entire area of Asia Minor, Greece, and Macedonia, and they were involved in drunkenness and fornication and God knows what, while they were talking in tongues. We must never forget that the naive and the gullible who is backslidden and out of the will of God often runs into a crisis or an emotional experience which gives him an alibi to go on the ministry, and the fool stands up and wastes the rest of his ministry talking about some weird thing that happened to him five or ten years ago, and he hadn't done anything since. Very typical of some of the hallelujah brethren. Don't worry about quenching that spirit. Just throw it out of the church. You'll get along better. The Holy Spirit can be grieved by the frivolity of men. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul said, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. Parents have confidence in a child, Later, the child steals, and the parents are grieved. The Holy Spirit trusts us to resist him and obey the Lord, and if we fail in this, then, of course, he's grieved. To be grieved is to be upset or disturbed by the action of somebody. To refuse or fail undermines the confidence of the Holy Spirit in us and disappoints him. We must never forget that many times in our actions we are a great disappointment to our Father, exactly as many children, human children, ordinary children, are a great disappointment to their physical parents. How much more many of us, many of us saved, born-again people, are a great disappointment to our Father in our lack of faith and lack of belief and lack of love for Him and lack of love for His Word. It's very, very common. We can be a great disappointment to the Lord and grieve Him. 
A man one time called another young man in. He was a doctor, and this doctor called a young man in, gave him a thorough examination. When he was through, the young man said, How come you looked at me so close? And the doctor said, Young man, I know your father very well. And he said, I just want to look you over. He said, You know, you're a great disappointment to me. You don't look a bit like him. And if a child is a child of God, there should be something about him that reminds you of the Father. How often the Holy Spirit is grieved by light and unprofitable conversation of the saints? How often he simply quits speaking, quit beating, because he knows perfectly well we're not going to pay any attention to him. I've met Christians and known Christians who have spent 20 years out of fellowship with God while operating a church. I've known Christians who have spent 25 years out of fellowship with God while taking up the collection and conducting business meetings. I've known Christians whom God told to do something and they haven't done it yet, and as a substitute for it, they've been doing every fool thing in the world, the world they can, trying to compensate or make up for their disobedience. And there's a great message in the Bible for these Bible-rejecting Christians. And every Bible-rejecting Christian, every saved child of God who is carrying on a show because of the love of money or the love of prestige should remember this passage in the Old Testament and write it in the tables of his heart. And this passage says, back in the Old Testament, and it should never be forgotten, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, that rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. 1 Samuel 15.23. 1 Samuel 15.23. When a Christian rebels against the Word of God, begins to go to the Greek to change it, to make it say what he wants it to, he is guilty of witchcraft and idolatry. When God calls a Christian to preach in the ministry, and he makes up his mind to support a big church with his money instead of going into the ministry, he is guilty of witchcraft and idolatry. I dare say in America there are 500,000 saved, born-again Christian businessmen who are involved in witchcraft and idolatry, according to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23. Let us watch the door of our lips. We cannot afford to trifle with sin and grieve the Holy Spirit. Men must be filled with the Holy Spirit to be happy. And men that are filled with the Holy Spirit are happy, but they're sober men. In Ephesians 4.31 we read, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. This is what followed, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. So anger and wrath and clamor in the home, fights and arguments between husbands and wives, fathers and children, mothers and children, grieve the Spirit of God. And if the truth were known, the reason why most churches never have more than one revival in 15 years, if they're fortunate enough to have that, and if the truth were known, the, the real reason why people aren't saved in most churches every Sunday, and there's some churches they don't get saved 52 Sundays in a year, if the truth were known, the reason why most preachers have very little power, and while they have it, their congregation doesn't have any power, if the truth were known, it is because the Holy Spirit has simply been grieved for so long in the living room by murders, fornication, rape, drunkenness, lying and stealing, swearing, killing and cheating, being broadcast by movies from Hollywood, Chicago, and New York, and by family fusses and arguments among believers that the Holy Spirit simply refuses to work and cooperate anymore when prayers are sent up for his help. If the Holy Spirit of God is being grieved in your life or quenched in your home, you should take a man to get this situation remedied immediately. And if you think the Holy Spirit is not grieved by the garbage and trash you watch on TV, you haven't got the sense that God gave a brass monkey, and I say that kindly and charitably with prayerful uh, forethought before I said it. 
if you think the Holy Spirit is not grieved with some of that trash and garbage you watch on TV, you don't have the sense that God gave a brass monkey, and if you were a lawyer or a doctor, I could care less. You probably have less sense. And if you had it, you'd get rid of it. All right, here we talk about sins against the Holy Spirit. On our next lesson, we will begin a series of two lessons, 30-minute studies in pneumatology on the Spirit-filled life of the believer.